We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today, we'll be profiling Mohammed El-Amir El-Sayed Atta, the alleged ringleader of the 9-11 terrorist attack. I will give a brief descriptive history regarding the profile of Atta in today's talk and talk about the construct of the 9-11 attacks, whether Atta was himself a product of the intelligence apparatus or was he actually a notorious terrorist linked to al-Qaeda. I think you'll see that there's more questions than answers regarding the mysterious profile of Muhammad Atta, one while abroad and one while he's inside the United States. Muhammad Atta, El Amir El Said Atta, was born in Kafr El Gouvernet, Egypt, on September 1st of 1968. He lived with his mother, Fothayma Muhammad Mustafa Sharak, and father, Muhammad El-Amir Awad El-Sayed Atta. Both weren't very religious, but they were quite modest in their daily lives, with the father being a well-respected lawyer in Cairo. Muhammad was known as a very quiet but affable young man who was uh, shy when it came to women. Muhammad was very attentive, however, when it came to his studies. And by 1990, the young Atta took courses in architecture and excelled quite well. It was here Muhammad Atta joined what is called an engineering syndicate, a professional trade group which is monitored by the Muslim Brotherhood. The school that trained many of its engineers, the syndicate served as an unofficial base for the Brotherhood in Egypt, where the organization recruits new operatives and spreads its ideology. The Muslim Brotherhood during this period had begun to implement new strategies to implement the Islamic faith. A document which is called the General Strategic Goal for the Group in North America which is dated May 22nd of 1991, outlines its goals 
to infiltrate the United States. From here, Mohammed Atta enrolls in the planning program of the Technical University of Hamburg, Harburg, in Germany. Atta chose Hamburg after meeting two German school teachers from uh, there in the fall of 1991. The teachers were in Cairo because they were organizing a student exchange program between the two countries of Germany and Egypt. Uh, after being introduced by mutual friends, they offered Atta a rent room, a rent-free room in their home where he stays for about uh, six months before moving into student housing. He would grow fond of one person, the department chairman, Dittmar Matul, who was a specialist in Middle East affairs. Matul would describe Atta as tender, sensitive. He had these deep, dark eyes. His eyes would speak. You could see the intelligence, the knowledge, the alertness. But Atta began other studies outside of his technical abilities. And thus, after his days at the university would end, he would frequent a nearby mosque. It was here that a radical Moroccan imam, Muhammad Fazizi, would give weekly sermons at the Al-Quds Mosque in Hamburg, Germany. Here, it is attended, the mosque's attendees, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziad Jara, Ramzi bin al-Shid. Fazizi would also make videotapes that are watched by Islamist radicals throughout Europe, espousing that democracy and Western values would be rejected by the Muslims living in the West who should only respect Quranic law. He often preaches that European countries are conducting a war against Islam and that smiting the head of the infidel is the duty for all Muslims mandated by God. Muhammad would travel back to his hometown in Cairo periodically. In a three-month trip in 1995, Atta demonstrates that he is still a member of an engineering syndicate linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. He takes two German students he is traveling with Volker Haus and Ralph Bodenstein to the syndicate's eating club. According to Haus, Atta does nothing during the trip which suggests he is a prominent member of the Muslim Brotherhood, but the group's influence on the club is indeed obvious. According to German author Jürgen Rauth, described by Newsday as one of Germany's top investigative reporters, in this year, the BKA which is the German Federal Office for Criminal Investigation, investigates Atta for petty drug crimes and falsifying phone cards while he is a student at the Technical University at hamburg Hamburg. While he isn't charged, a record of the investigation will prevent him from getting a security job with Latumza Airlines in early of 2001. Also around 1995, Atta registers as a United Arab Emirates citizen. This will be confirmed after 9-11 by investigators in Hamburg's interior minister, Olaf Schultz, who will say that his UAE nationality was recorded by federal database with personal data of foreign residents and asylum seekers. Atta would seemingly start to lead two lives while starting to get noticed also by 
German intelligence at the same time. It is unclear how or why Atab registered as a United Arab Emirates national. In addition, throughout most of his time in Germany, Atta is registered under a name variant, Mohammed El Amir, and only registers using his full name after obtaining a new passport. In 1996, Atta would start to become very known in the Al Quds Mosque to the regular members as there as well. He is also beginning to become more noticed in other mosques surrounding the Hamburg area. After a time, Atta begins to teach classes at the Al Quds Mosque. He's quite stern with the students and criticizes them for wearing their hair in ponytails and gold chains around their necks, as well as listening to music, which he claims is a product of the devil. If a woman shows up at the mosque, her father is informed and she is not welcome. His slow transformation to radicalization was starting to become apparent, even though he had no religious indoctrination while he was growing up in Cairo, Egypt. Very few attendees would be left at the end listening to the strict Atta. Some of the members who were in attendance, Ramzi bin Al-Shib, Saeed Bahaji, and Monir El-Motasadeh. There were also two other men who were keeping their eye on Atta and the group. These two men were Syrian-born Al-Qaeda operatives, Marmoun Darkanzali and Mohammed Haydar Zamar. Darkanzali and Zamar would become the motivators for the strict religious sect, later to be called the Hamburg Cell, in regards to their vitriol for the West and their fervent Salafi beliefs. On April 11, 1996, Muhammad Atta makes out his will. Although the act of making a will is not unusual for the 27-year-old Muslim, the content of the will is rather unusual perhaps reflecting the radical environment of the mosque onto Atta. His will is often seen as bizarre, but completely written with the religious overtones according to his Islamic faith. For example, it says, quote, I don't want a pregnant woman or a person who is not clean to come and say goodbye to me because I don't approve it. The person who will wash my body near my genitals must wear gloves on his hands so he won't touch my genitals. I don't want any woman to go to, gr to my grave at all during my funeral or any occasion thereafter, end quote. The will is witnessed by Abdel Ghani Muzadi and Munir al-Motaset, Hamburg cell attendees. They would also make wills around this time. By the spring of 1997, Atta, Ramzi bin al-Shib, and two of their associates, Muhammad Haydar Zamar and Muhammad bin Nasser Belfast, find employment at a small Hamburg area computer company called Hay Computing Service GmbH. Atta and Belfast got their jobs to Argus Budiman, an, an Indonesian associate of theirs who was already employed at the company. They would be seen as diligent workers at the company and basically kept themselves away from the co-workers who weren't affiliated with the mosque. Months later, Atta, along with Bamzi bin al-Shib, would travel to Afghanistan 
where it was reported they would meet with other al-Qaeda operatives and start training at the Kandahar training camp. When, Mahat, when Atta returns to the spring of 98, he tells his roommate that he had been on a pilgrimage in Hajj, during Hajj in Mecca. This is Atta's longest absence since arriving in Hamburg, and there is no record of him spending any substantial portion of it at his home in Cairo. After returning to Germany, Atta applies for a new passport, something he will do at the returning, after returning from Afghanistan earlier in 2000. It was also asserted that by Air Force spokesman Colonel Ken McClellan in 1997 that a, quote, Muhammad Atta had once attended the International Officer School at Maxwell Gunter Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, end quote. But he adds that there were discrepancies in the biographical data. At the International Officer School, it is also claimed that Muhammad Atta would engage in learning aircraft, which were pilotless, Global Hawk, uh, which is a technology that enables pilotless flight and has been functioning since at least early 1997. But it is also uh, later stated that it was a different Muhammad Atta as opposed to the Atta that was, in, that was in Germany. In 1998, thieves snatched a passport from a car driven by a U.S. tourist in Barcelona, Spain. This passport later finds its way into the hands of would-be hijacker Ramzi Ben Al-Sheib. Ben Al-Sheib allegedly used the name on the passport in the summer of 2001 as he wires money to pay flight school tuition for Zacharias Moussaoui in Oklahoma. After 9-11, investigators will believe that the movement of the passport shows connections between the 9-11 plotters in Germany and a support network in Spain made up mostly by ethnic Syrians. Investigators later would believe that Syrians served as the deep cover mentors, recruiters, financiers, and logistic providers for the hijackers, elite backup for an elite attack team. Marmoon Darkandali, one of the mentors to Ada had deep connections and was born in Aleppo, Syria, which was his place of birth. Um, and also, uh, the deep connections regarding Al-Qaeda and connections to crime syndicate in Syria. The connection, however, is redacted by German intelligence, and the CIA never mentions this in any other of their field reports, or were they acknowledged and covered up. Meanwhile, Muhammad Atta, Saeed Bahaji, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, and other members of the Amberg cell move into a four-bedroom apartment at 54 Mayen Strauss in Hamburg, Germany. Some of them stay there until February of 2001. Investigators would later believe that this move marks as the formation of the Hamburg cell. During the 28 months, Muhammad Atta's name is on the apartment lease. During this time, also, 29 Middle Eastern or North African men register the apartment as their home address. This address was also visited by Mohammed Hidar Zamar and Marmoon Darkanzali. German intelligence monitored the apartment on and off for months, and wiretaps Munir al Motaseh, an associate, will later be convicted for, for assisting the 9 11 plot but apparently it does not find any ind indication of suspicious activity. 
The CIA also allegedly starts monitoring Atta in early of 2000 while he's living at the apartment, but doesn't tell Germany of their surveillance. This would later become a reoccurring theme as the CIA also tries to recruit Darkenzali and Zamar without any um, successful um, insistence that they would be involved in an undercover double agent involved operation. Or were they? It's not definitively known. In June of 2000, Atta leaves Germany to live in the, inside the United States. German officials would later claim that the apartment of 54 Mann Straub is never bugged. An unnamed senior German security official would later say that some surveillance of associated peoples give the impression that the people living there were fanatical believers. The German BFB, which is the German's domestic intelligence agency, would claim that they had to decide whether to ask permission to wiretap the apartment. According to a BFB official, they discuss this every day. But he'll also claim that they ultimately decide that they would not be able to get legal permission for a wiretap because there is no evidence that the apartment occupants are breaking any laws. Around 1999, Atta would meet with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, a high-ranking al-Qaeda operative who was also involved with many nefarious operations, including financing terrorist plots such as the Bajinka plot. This is according to the 9-11 Commission. Take this with a grain of salt. He would also meet with Ramzi bin al-Sheib at this time. Atta is also regularly attending Islamic study groups led by fellow Hamburg student Mohammed bin Nasser Belfast. By this time, Atta and most of the group have replaced their Western jeans and clean-shaven faces with long beards and tunics. After one of these meetings, Atta asks to privately see Volker Harum Brun, an ethnic German who is also a member of the group. Brun says that Atta strongly warns him to stay away from Islamic extremists, to follow the Quran strictly, to live a careful life. According to German investigators, by at least this time, Al-Qaeda Hamburg cell members, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziad Jara, and Ramzi bin al-Shib have come up with the idea of attacking the United States by using airplanes and piling them into high-value targets. This theory is based on witness statements and the discovery of the German police regarding a flight simulator file on a computer used by the Hamburg cell that was downloaded between January of 98 and October of 99 while at 54 Marion Straub apartment. Both Atta and Al-Shehi start taking lessons on ultralight aircraft this year. In April of 99, Atta takes flying lessons in the Philippines, and fellow hijacker Marwan al-Shehi is along with him. They stay at the Woodland Park Resort Hotel near Angeles City, which is about 60 miles north of Manila, and near the formerly U.S.-controlled Clark Air Base. Victoria Brokoy, a chambermaid at the hotel, will later claim that Atta stayed at the hotel for about a week 
while he learned to fly ultralight planes at the nearby Angeles City Flying Club. The Philippine military will later confirm that Atta and Al-Shehi were at the hotel after finding four employees who were also claimed to have seen them in 1999. Other locals, such as the manager of the nearby restaurant and others, will recall seeing them together. Huffman Aviation, the Venice, Florida flight school later attended by Atta and Al-Shehi, is sold to Naples-based flight school Ambassador Airways manager Wally Hilliard and Rudy Deckers. Huffman Aviation is just up the road from Florida Flight Training Center where the alleged pilot of Flight 93, Zia Jar, attended. He becomes an attendee during the summer of 2000. Atta and Al-Shehi, plus would-be hijacker Ramzi bin Al-Sheib, along with associate Munir Al-Multasek, hold a meeting in Amsterdam, Netherlands. On at least one occasion, Mossadegh receives cash provided by unnamed Saudi financier that is meant to fund a new Eindhoven mosque. Investigators believe he used the money instead to help pay for some flying lessons of Muhammad Atta and Malvin al-Shehi. In October of 99, Atta enters a lottery for permanent resident status inside the United States. The application is submitted over the internet to the National Visa Service, a company that charges a $50 fee helping individuals enter green card lotteries for permanent resident status in the United States. Atta submits another lottery application in 99, but both applications are denied. In December of 1999, Atta and al are seen again in the Philippines partying and taking flying lessons. They stay at the Woodland Park Resort Hotel while being visited by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in the Philippines, plotting again to assassinate the Pope in 1999, which again was unsuccessful in the planning stages. It was previously unsuccessful during the Bajinka plot. Atta went to the nearby Angeles Sitting Fly Club for about two or three weeks, three, two or three times a week to train on ultralight aircraft again at this period. Atta and Al-Shehi were at the resort early in the year, yet no one recalls Al-Shehi taking flying lessons, only Atta. After this trip, both men traveled to Kandahar, Afghanistan, allegedly to meet with Ziad Jara, Nawafa Hazmi, and Ramzi bin Al-Shib. Atta and Al-Shay report their passports missing, with Jawa reporting his missing in February of 2000. Now, the reason for this is that usually this is a shake-off um, border police because usually young Arab men who go to Afghanistan, especially to Kandahar, are usually um, Mujahideen fighters. And so these people would actually be selected for extra security um, and to be screened. So they actually um, report their passports stolen and they get new ones without them ever traveling, without them ever showing that they traveled to Kandahar, Afghanistan. Um, they returned to Florida after, meet, after the meeting in Afghanistan. Now, the, the Congressional Joint Inquiry will later find that several of the hijackers, which included Atta and al-Shehi, uh, attended mosques inside the, the United States and that at least one of the mosques was located in Florida. Um, the Florida mosque, attended by Atta and al-Shehi, is the al-Hijra mosque 
run by Galshir Shukjamura in Miramar, Broward County. Atta and several of the hijackers lived near the mosque and trained at nearby Opaloka Airport while Shukjumura is receiving money from the Saudi embassy in Washington at this time. Was some of that funding being received by the Hamburg cell to pay for lessons at Opaloka? During May of 2000, Mohammed Atta is put under surveillance by the CIA while living in Germany during this time. He is reportedly observed buying large quantities of chemicals in Frankfurt, apparently for production of explosives and for biological warfare. The CIA also alleges to have trailed Atta and have admitted to have failed to inform German authorities about this, their investigation, even as the Germans were investigating many of the associates at the same time. The disclosure that Atta was being trailed by police long before the September 11th attacks raises the question why the attacks could not have prevented with the man's arrest. German intelligence also officially states that we can no longer exclude the possibility that the Americans wanted to keep an eye on Atta after his entry in the United States. This would also be uh, reverberated by a U.S. US Army intelligence program called Able Danger, which identified five al-Qaeda terrorist cells, one of them that had connections to Brooklyn, New York, and will informally be known as the Brooklyn cell by the Able Danger team. The other cell, which was the Hamburg cell, which included 9-11 hijackers Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Khalid al-Midar, and Nawaf Mahazdin. According to former intelligence officer of the Able Danger program, Anthony Shaper, who worked closely with the Able Danger program, the link to Brooklyn is not based upon any firm evidence, but computer analysts which establish patterns in links between the four men. The software put them all together in Brooklyn. James D. Smith, a contractor working with the Able Danger unit, discovers Muhammad Atta's link to Al-Qaeda. Smith had been employed using advanced computer software and analyzing data between individuals who were going between the mosques, frequented by the cells, which made a link between not just Muhammad Atta, but to Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the alleged ringleader of the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and the landmark plot. During the summer of 2000, anonymous government sources later claim that Muhammad Atta visits fellow hijackers Nawafa Hazmi and Khalid al-Midor, as well as a Saudi GID intelligence official, Omar al-Bayoumi. These same sources will also later allegedly claim that al-Bayoumi is identified as an advanced man for al-Qaeda using his Saudi GID intelligence links between the months, between the days, June 28th to June 30th of 2000. There were also a dozen calls made from Atta's cell phone in New York to the home phone number of an accomplished al-Qaeda financier, Ali Abdul Aziz Ali, a.k.a. Amar al-Baluchi in the United Arab Emirates. Ali is also the nephew of one Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. On June 29th, Ali sends $5,000 to Marwan al-Shehi in the U.S. and more money from Ali to future hijackers 
follow over in the next few months. All of these financial transcripts are recorded by MoneyGram transactions. Some of the 9-11 suspects open bank accounts in Florida around the time they start flight training there. Zia Jara opens an account at First Florida National Bank with a $2,000 deposit. Nine days later, Muhammad Atta and Marwan Al-Shehi open a joint account at SunTrust Bank in Venice, Florida. On July 3rd of 2000, Atta and Al-Shehi moved from New York to Venice, moved from Venice, Florida to New York. Now, while they were in Florida, they trained at Huffman Aviation, a flying school which is at Venice Municipal Airport. Um, on July 1st, according to the school's owner, Rooney Deckers, they inquired about taking Florida, uh, taking lessons there. Atta gives a down payment of $18,703 in total for his lessons, and Al-Shehi gives $20,917 for his lessons. The money necessary to cover their training is sent to them in a series of transfers from Dubai of the United Arab Emirates from Mustafa Hasnawi. While Atta and Al-Shehi attend Mahuffman Aviation, Ziad Jara is taking lessons at a flight school just down the road from them at Florida Flight Training Center, which is operated by ma manager Arnie Kuthon. According to official accounts, Atta and Al-Shehi complete their schooling at Huffman on December 19th of 2000 and receive their commercial pilot's licenses. Rudy Deckers says that after returning to the school to settle their bills, they leave and are never seen again. In December of 2000, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi are living with FBI informer Abdus Sattar Sheikh in San Diego, and they are apparently frequently visited by Muhammad Atta as well as Hani Hanjour, according to neighbors who were interviewed by FBI uh, after the September 11, 2001 attack. After while attending flight school in Venice, um, Muhammad Atta and Marwan Al Shehi um, regularly visit a couple of the local bars. Now, this would go in direct contradiction to their alleged fervent religious beliefs. Um, most nights at the flying classes, they drink beer at a bar called The Outlook. Um, they are observed there as being neatly dressed, well-spoken, um, with Atta coming across as cold and unfriendly, um, and is disapproving of their presence of women service behind the bar. Um, Al-Shea is actually seen more sociable. Um, according to veteran British intelligence official Colonel John Hughes Wilson, will note that at the same time, as Atta and Al-Shea learned to fly at Huffman Aviation, um, a CIA front company called Air Carib um, was also operating out of the very same hangar at the Venice airport of where Huffman Aviation is at. He would go on to comment that this highly curious coincidence must inevitably raise some suspicions at just how much the CIA really did know um, regarding Atta and Al-Shea before 9-11. Was the CIA trying to infiltrate and double the U.S.-based al-Qaeda cell, just like they claim about al-Midar and al-Hazmi, uh, turning them into al-Qaeda uh, agents for the CIA in the hope of using it against Bin Laden's organization in the future? Now, the al-Karib story was broken by investigative reporter Daniel Hopsiger, who would later publish a book about Atta's time in Florida 
um, entitled Welcome to Terrorland, Muhammad Atta and the 9-11 cover-up in Florida. According to an internal 2002 FBI document regarding the 9-11 attacks, Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and Walid al-Shehi are seen flying small aircraft at an airport in Oklahoma. Zakaris Musawi is also asserted to be there at the same time. The document also notes that several employees at Million Air, located at Wiley Post Airport in Bethany, Oklahoma, reported to have seen Muhammad Atta, Al-Shehi, and Al-Sheri on the same Beechcraft Duchess aircraft all at the same time. Furthermore, Zacharias Musawi is also seen there in the same time frame, although the FBI report will not mention if Musawi is ever seen with the other three at the same time. The employees also cannot give exact dates when these people are seen, but all the visits are in the six months leading up to September 11th of 2001. They are said to have taken place after August 4th of 2001. Also, in the summer months of 2001, Atta and Al-Shay reportedly spend at least 30 minutes practicing landing a single-engine plane at Clearwater Air Pack, Florida, after it had closed for the night. This is according to Daniel Purcell, the chief instructor at Huffman Aviation, the Venice flight school attended by the two men in the later half of 2000. Uh, Atta is also staying for a time at the apartment of 21-year-old blonde hair pizza restaurant manager Amanda Keller. Keller lives in the Sandpiper Apartments in Venice, Florida, the same complex in which Atta reportedly shares a presumably separate apartment with Marwan Al-Shehi and four months earlier. Investigative reporter Daniel Hopsiger later locates and interviews Amanda Keller, and she claims that the Middle Eastern man, who is briefly her boyfriend, was indeed Muhammad Atta. However, in 2006, she will later retract this and claim that she lied to Hopsiger, stating that, quote, it was my bad for lying. I really didn't think about it until after I did it, end quote. Between the dates of June 28th and July 1st of 2001, Muhammad Atta takes his first trip to Vegas. Others involved with the 9-11 plot also travel there very shortly. The details about this meeting is unknown. However, how they traveled there is also um, quite curious. Flying from Fort Lauderdale to Boston and then the next day to Las Vegas via San Francisco with United Airlines. Atta stays there for three nights, then returns to Boston via Denver and flies to New York the next day. The reason for these trips is not definitively known, although there was speculation that the hijackers are casing similar uh, casing aircraft similar to those that they will hijack in 11 and that they're casing the security apparatus of these um, airports. Around this time, the NSA intercepts telephone conversations between 9-11 alleged mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Mohammed Atta, but it apparently does not share the information with any of the other agencies. By August 2nd of 2001, Mohammed Atta makes several phone calls to plot facilitator Mustafa Ahmed al-Hafsawi to coordinate the arrival in the United States 
of four muscle hijackers. On August 4th of 2001, a Saudi named Mohammed al Qatani is stopped at the Orlando, Florida airport and denied entry to the United States by customs official Jose Melendez Perez, who later will claim that he was suspicious of al Qatani because he had arrived with no return ticket, no hotel reservations, spoke little English, behaved quite menacingly, and offered conflicting information on the purpose of his travel. At one point, al Qatani said that someone was waiting for him elsewhere at the airport. After 9-11, surveillance cameras would show that that person who was waiting for him at the airport was none other than Mohammed Atta. Was this the 20th hijacker or plan for more hijackings throughout the day, which was seen as a possible scenario with the alleged hijacking of United Airlines Flight 23, which was to be a flight from JFK to LAX International that saw four Arab men arguing with stewardesses on not being able to take off due to the grounding of all United Airlines flights? The question remains to be unanswered. The luggage uh, regarding these men of Flight 23 showed that this was not a separate uh, hijacking and was indeed a part of the plot. The luggage showed box cutters, pilot's licenses from Florida, and an Al-Qaeda manual. They had left their contents behind, uh, which was discovered by airport security. In an interview with Al Jazeera journalist Yossi Fruda in 2002, would-be hijacker and plot facilitator Ramzi bin Alshib will claim that roughly around this day, he receives a coded chat room message about the 9-11 plot from future hijacker Muhammad Atta in the United States. Fruda will later co-write a book and in it, he will allege that Bin Shabib gave him a computer disk containing the exact message. The message, as translated by Fuda, reads, quote, The first semester commences in three weeks. There are no changes. All is well. There are good signs and encouraging ideas. Two high schools and two universities. Everything is going to plan. This summer will surely be hot. I want to talk to you about some details. 19 certificates for private education and four exams regarding to the professor. Goodbye, end quote. But if that's the case, who are the other hijackers involved with the plot? Who are the alleged, who are the alleged Arab operatives on board Flight 23 if there were just 19 men? And who were they sent by? Between August 25th and September 5th of 2001, all the alleged 9-11 hijackers booked their flights for September 11, 2001 using the alleged actual names. The total cost of the, Texas, the tickets is in excess of $30,000. Also, on August 27th, 2001, a Saudi family abruptly moves out of a Sarasota, Florida residence linked to individuals who will later be accused of being among the Line 11 hijackers. The residence is owned by a Saudi couple, Isam Ghazawi and his American-born wife, Deborah, which is also occupied by Isam's daughter, Anu, and her husband, Abdul Aziz Al-Hijj. On September 7th, President Bush 
planned to visit a Sarasota, Florida medical school, and the, the visit is publicly announced. September 10th, 2001, one day before the September 11th attacks, Muhammad Atta allegedly calls 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Afghanistan. According to the 9-11 Commission report, KSM gives final approval to, attack, to Atta to launch the attack. The specifics of that conversation haven't been released. Later in the evening of September 10th, Muhammad Atta and Abdulaziz Alamari drive to Portland, Maine, where they would spend the night at the Comfort Inn. They would check in, they would, I'm sorry, they would check out at 5.33 a.m. on September 11, 2001. The following day, after, after their drive, they, they rented their, um, they drove there using a rented Nissan. And they drove that car to Portland International Jet Airport, entering the parking lot at 5.40 a.m. They are wearing formal attire, ties and jackets. Atta checks in two bags, Alamari none. Atta is randomly selected for additional security by the FAA's Computer Assisted Passenger Pre-Screening System, or short CAPS. Noting that their flight is soon due to leave, the ticket agent who checks them in, Michael Tuway, tells them that you're cutting it close. Atta begun, is quite angry because Tuway actually informs him that he will have to check in again while he lands in Boston. Atta complains that he's assuredly he would have to, um, he complains that he was assured um, he would have a one-step check-in uh, ticket. Uh, and while they land at uh, 7.47, um, Atta actually calls, uh, allegedly calls Marwan al-Shehi while he's sitting at the runway. Um, they presumably confirm the plot is on. Um, and according to the 9-11 Commission report at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 is suspected to be piloted by lead hijacker Mohammed Atta, which crashes down into the North Tower, killing all 76 passengers on board. The question about why they are in Portland to begin with raises uh, some suspicions. Now, according to the 9-11 Commission report, this was because they wanted to um, throw off investigators um, or security officials at Logan Airport because this was also the airport um, where um, United Airlines Flight 175 was taken off from, and allegedly this is where 10 hijackers were to be involved, American Airlines 11 and United, Air, uh, United Airlines Flight 175. According to the 9-11 Commission report, um, the reason for their trip to Portland was so that they would not be seen all together at once at Logan Airport. Now, I would submit to you that this is quite a stretch, and I don't believe it. Um, I think the reason for their for their Portland trip, and this is speculation, take this you know as speculation, uh, was to meet with other hijackers that were involved with the plot. Now, this would um, of course um, commiserate with um, other planes that um, would later. Um, be visited by uh, Arabs um, on September 13th and 14th. Um, and this is also related by uh, fellow 9-11 uh, researcher Nelson Martins, a.k.a. DJ Thermal Detonator, 
in a multitude of his films, um, which I'm going to link in the um, description of the podcast um, for you to look at. I think this is um, a great uh, anomaly. Um, and it also proves that 9-11 was supposed to be a bigger operation. Um, because going to Portland and just missing um, getting on the American Airlines plane, and this is reiterated by Michael Tue, um, the ticket agent at Portland, um, and just missing you know the biggest operation of their lives. Why on earth would they do that? Um, so that's the working theory that I have. Um, now, those who were closest to Atta, Muhammad Atta, why he lived in Egypt, were shocked to their core as they began to hear the news over the days and weeks um, and through the press releases from the Justice Department led by U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Director Robert Mueller as they pieced together from the information uh, regarding who was suspected to be involved. Um, Atta was never known as a religious fanatic growing up in Egypt. Um, even to friends and associates of those who knew him and to the parents of Atta um, were shocked to their core. Now, this is also to uh, similarly regarding Ziad Jara. Now, I, I did a previous podcast about Ziad Jara last year um, about his profile, which doesn't meet the criteria put forth by the Pentbomb investigators and the 9-11 Commission about him being a religious fanatic. He grew up in a very uh, well-to-do home, just like Atta. Um, and so this would raise a lot of questions. I mean, there are more questions than answers regarding the profiles of Muhammad Atta and Ziad Jara. And interestingly enough, both of these men had the fingerprints of not just domestic intelligence, but foreign intelligence as well. Um, it would later come to uh, conclude that Muhammad Atta had lived seemingly two lives. One as a well-to-do secular student in Egypt, and one was a religious fanatic in Germany, and a uh, religious fanatic who broke the rules of his beliefs um, while inside the United States. Um, it was alleged that he was um, drinking, uh, partying. It was alleged that he did cocaine, um, that according to testimony of Amanda Keller, that he spoke Hebrew, French, um, and Arabic. Uh, he had multiple passports under his name. Um, so in essence, who was Muhammad Atta? Was he a uh, well-to-do student in Germany? Was he the shy boy who was shy toward women while living in Egypt? Was he this religious fanatic while attending the Al-Quds Mosque, uh, while being supervised by um, Syrian Al-Qaeda contacts in the Hamburg cell, and monitored by these men, groomed by these men, while under the uh, intelligence apparatuses of the CIA? Or was he this partying, salapis extremist that contradicted his own beliefs while inside the United States, while being supervised by German uh, intelligence operatives and the CIA, and, of course, um, Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, who were monitoring the Hamburg cell on the East Coast. 
in the months after the attack. Al Jazeera reporter Yosri Foden would interview the grieving and astonished lawyer, father, Muhammad El-Amir Awad El-Sayyidata, who would continually to repeat that his son could not have done this horrific act. Quote, I am Egyptian. I am loyal to Egypt. I am proud of Egypt and the government of Egypt. But there is one point I will never accept. Oh, Egypt, where is my son? Where is my son? This is your responsibility. On top of that stands the president of Egypt. Answer this question to me, Mr. President. Where is my son? All the evidence proves that he had nothing to do with that incident. So where is he? End quote. This would conclude the end of the podcast, but does it conclude the investigation into Muhammad Akbar? I would submit to you that regarding Muhammad Atta, regarding Ziajar, more so than any of the other uh, participants of the hijacking of the four planes on September 11, 2001, there are more questions than answers. And these questions regarding who were these men? Were they who they said they were by the FBI Pentagon investigation or by the 9-11 Commission facts, uh, 9-11 Commission report? Or were they the profiles stated by the parents of these men? Secular, non-religious students who were basically either manipulated or used by the intelligence apparatuses uh, and or were these profiles of different men whose identities uh, were stolen. I can't tell you definitively who these men were, but I can only relate to you information regarding these men, uh, regarding information from primary sources and information that is later claimed by the FBI and the 9-11 Commission report. And so I will leave it up to you, the listener, to make up his own mind about who these men were and who they weren't. This ends the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And I will see you again in another episode.